I know some of you guys are probably a lot more familiar with these people than you like to be. Some of you never want to go to these guys, and some of you, maybe some of you actually do enjoy going. I don't know. Um, But I'm talking about a doctor this morning, and for the most part, most of us probably go to the doctor because we have to, not because we necessarily want to. We get there, it's kind of an awkward thing, right? Because you're in this place and you're kind of surrounded by, by, by things that are uncomfortable. There's a little anxiety, you're waiting for the doctor to come in the room, you're nervous maybe as to what his report will share of the blood work, the turn, how the blood work turned out. But even if you're just there for a routine physical, to get a wellness checkup, there's certain things that the doctor's going to do every time you visit the doctor because they they set for him kind of a borderline of how healthy of a person you are. They're going to probably put you on the scale. They're going to take your blood pressure. If you're diabetic or have had trouble with that, they're going to run some blood sugar numbers, right? They're, they're going to they're probably get the, the stethoscope, and they're going to listen to your heartbeat and to your respirations because each of those things is compared against the known norm, right? Your blood pressure, they look at that and say, well, hey, if it's 120 over 80, over 80, you're good. But if it's way higher than that, you might be in, in trouble. Maybe they're going to take a look at, at your blood sugar. And if it's around the hundreds or so, you're in good shape. Or maybe if it's higher than that, there's something that needs to be done. Each of those things tells us or tells the doctor how healthy you are. But there's a, there's a known standard. And the same thing exists for the church and for us as Christians. There's a There's a standard that God has laid out for us to help us measure our spiritual health. And I think that most of us are here this morning because we're we're people that are that are interested in at least, and probably in greater greater extent than just interested, we're concerned about where we are with God. Now, what kind of a person am I? How well am I growing and maturing to become the person that God's called me to be? The Bible lays out for us some of those ideals. The last few months, we've been taking a look at the book of Ephesians, and I know some of you guys are like, when are we going to get out of Ephesians, Jason? But it's not one of those books that you can kind of just like break open and kind of take a look at and then move on, at least you're not doing justice to the book. Because the Apostle Paul spends an enormous amount of time on the front side of the book reminding us of the grace of God, the goodness of God, and our response, or the appropriate response to the goodness of God. And then he spends a lot of time on the back side of the book explaining to us what a what a Christ follower looks like. Last week, we began to read in the second half of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, where the Apostle Paul reminded us that God gives us church leadership for a person. And if you were a Greek person reading the Bible in its original language, you would, as you read through Ephesians, the fourth chapter, you, when you got to verse 11, you would be reading one sentence all the way through verse 16. So that entire section of scripture right there, Ephesians 4, 11 through, or Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, right, um, is one sentence in the original Greek language, which reminds us that it's one complete thought. We've broken it up for, for preaching purposes, but let's just reread that together, or at least part of that together this morning in context, so that we understand what the Apostle Paul is telling us. If you have your Bibles, grab them, turn with me, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 11, and we're going to kind of read through verse 16. Paul says, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We kind of preached through that last week if you were here with us. In verse 14, so that we might no longer be children 
who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This morning, we're going to focus on the second half of this monstrous sentence that Paul lays out, verses 14, 15, and 16, because in that text, he gives us a lot of really important information about what the leadership of the church is equipping us to do, right? We, we talked a little bit about that last week. We said that the... the, um, the um, the apostles and prophets, those, those guys' time has kind of come and gone. But the evangelists and the preachers, teachers, or, or shepherds, leaders, um, the eldership in the church, those offices are still kind of around. And those guys' purpose is to kind of equip and to motivate and to shape the church to look like Jesus Christ. And today, the Apostle Paul kind of tells us a little bit about what that looks like. The Apostle Paul begins, though, in a very interesting place. Because he reminds us of how important it is for us to have four things. And in these, these three ver- two verses, excuse me, he really lays out four objectives, four measuring points, if you will, of a good, well-balanced spiritual life. The first one is that we would have a Bible-based worldview. The second one is that we have truth, but it's balanced with love. The third one is that we're growing every day to be more like Christ. And the fourth is that we have a team mindset. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about those four items. So let's just jump into the first one. Apostle Paul starts off and he says that you're no longer children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and, and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. One of the most important marks of what it means to be mature as a Christian is to know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And a lot of times I, I think that we kind of step up to that issue of doctrine and we hear that word and we're like, that's, that's what some people go to college for and they get paid to tell me what good doctrine is. And guys, that's, that's true in some ways, but it's really a personal thing. We all have a doctrine by which we live our lives. We don't use that word anymore, right? But all that means is it's a philosophy. It's it's the rules by which we conduct our business, all right? Some of you guys are very, very, very honest people. Hopefully all of you are. That's a part of your doctrine of living. Some of you are are people that that are very frugal about your financial resources. It's a part of your doctrine of life. And the question this morning is this, do we have a biblical worldview? Do we have a biblical doctrine? Because we live in a world where a lot of people have ideas of what you should believe, right? How many of you have run into somebody just recently that was thoroughly convinced that you should believe something the way they believe it, right? Of course we did, right? It may not be a spiritual thing. It might be about what the best team is in the NFL this season or who you should pick for your fantasy team or who you should invest in for your retirement fund or a million billion things. Paul's not worried so much about that as he's worried about our spiritual, our Christian, our doctrine when it comes to our walk with God. We live in a world today that is heavily influenced by postmodernism. And some of you might be asking, well, Jason, 
why should I even worry about doctrine? I'll let you worry about that, and I'm going to worry about something else. But we all need to worry about doctrine because Paul said, I want you to move from a place of immaturity to a place of maturity. I don't want you to be those people that are blown around by every changing wind of doctrine. I preach now almost 30 years, which makes me feel real old. Um, But one of the things that I've seen over those 30 years is that we are often influenced by by the blowing winds of doctrine, right? There's this new book comes out or this new conference that pops up or this new speaker and people are passionate about this or they're passionate about that or they're passionate about the other thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oftentimes that book was written and that conference speaker is speaking or that conference is held to push people toward a closer relationship with Christ. But so often we miss that and we just become fans of the book or fans of the speaker or fans of the conference or fans of the experience. Paul said that's, that's like children. They, they love an experience, but they really haven't stopped to ask themselves what's real, what's true. In a world that's affected by postmodernism, and that, world gets, that word gets thrown around a whole lot, doesn't it? Um, but um, it's, the world tells us today that truth is kind of relative, you know, I mean, you have your truth, I have my truth, we all can kind of look and believe on something. And really, you can't understand postmodernism until you understand modernism, right? Because it is after modernism, postmodernism. And quickly, I got way off in a tall grass for the first service, so I promise you guys I won't do that. But quickly, to define postmodernism, modernism was that period of time in history, not too long ago, where we decided, you know what, we can create reproducible ways of doing things. We don't have to just build one carriage and then start and build another carriage and start and build another carriage. We can, we can build and amass a whole bunch of supplies, a whole bunch of wheels all at once and a whole bunch of engines all at once and a whole bunch of parts all at once and we can create an assembly line and we can put these things together and we'll put Ford on the front of them and we'll change the world, right? We don't, we don't have to just grow tomatoes in our garden, but we can grow lots of tomatoes and feed a lot of people tomato food or we don't have to just grow one cow and, and milk that one cow and every one of us has our own cow. We can... We can milk thousands of cows, and, and, and we can go to the grocery store, and people can purchase our product. We modernize the world, right? We, we even say that. We talk about how the world is modern. That is, in many ways, uh, just that we've processed everything. Postmodernism looks at the world and says, you know what? There's more than one way to do that. There's more than one way to grow tomatoes, and there's more than one way to build a car, and I guess they're right. The problem is, is that the church has always been bigger than and works differently than modernism. And the church is bigger than and works differently than postmodernism. When we talk about the philosophies of the world around us and how we think the world should work, they just never work for the church because they're built on a different system of things. I think we all realize that there is absolute truth in the world. We live in a world where we absolutely depend on absolute truth, right? We all got up this morning. We know exactly when the sun's going to come up this morning because it's come up on the 20th or whatever day of, Jan- of September it is. Um, what is it today? 10th, that day. Yeah, all right. on the 10th day of September, it always comes up at the exact same time, right? Why? Because it's been doing that for eons, and we know that to the minute we know what time the sun's going to come up. We know when we get up in the morning how much gravitational pull is going to be on our bodies. Now, I know some of us think that it gets increased overnight. That's just our age. Um, But we know exactly the amount of force because a plane takes off calculating all that 
perfectly. We live in a world that God has created and designed to run absolutely with perfection. And along with that perfection, there are some just hard and fast rules. When I was in high school, I had a chemistry teacher named Mr. Phillips. How many of you like chemistry? Anybody? All right. What is the best part of chemistry class? The finals. <laughs> Mr. Jody did not like chemistry. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of chemistry class is when you mix the stuff together, right? The stuff where they're doing the math and they're learning the periodic table and you're trying to figure out all these. That's the boring stuff. But the fun stuff is when you're dumping chemicals. And Mr. Phillips, when we did the dumping chemicals portion of, you guys are already worried. You're like, I'm glad I was not in chemistry with you, Jason. Um, we're in the dumping chemicals part of, of chemistry. Mr. Phillips prowled the room with this meter stick, right? He was, like a, he was like a guy on guard right here. And the reason was, is because in his younger years, he was like the fun chemistry teacher, you know? And there were some dudes that were in chemistry, and they were just dumping stuff together. They were those guys that thought, you know, if a little bit does something, then a lot will do a big something, right? I don't know what they blew up, but they blew up part of the chemistry lab. Mr. Phillips almost lost his job, as I remember. Um, and uh, he was scared to death because he recognized what we all know. That when you're dealing with the natural world, there's very little margin for interpretation. It is what it is. Things have to be the way they have to be. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts off these four, this list of four things talking about our doctrine, our philosophy for life. And he said, guys, I want you to make sure that your doctrine, your philosophy for living isn't a conservative one or a liberal one. It's a Christ-centered one. It's a very different view than what we often think of when we think of our worldview. But it is a worldview that Jesus came and brought into the world, right? You remember in the opening parts of the book of, or the middle part of the book of John, John 14, verse 6, you guys memorized this text probably when you were kids, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? That was the words of Jesus right there, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is, I am the one, I am the answer. I define in how I live what truth really is for the world. There's a moment later in the book of John that I find even more powerful. It's that, it's on the morning of Jesus' betrayal. He's about to go to the cross, and he's been very quiet, really, because he has nothing to say to Herod. Herod knows who he is and just doesn't, wanna, doesn't even want to be serious about it. He has nothing to say to Annas and Caiaphas because they really don't care about the truth. They just want the problem, which was Jesus, eliminated. But now he's standing before Pilate, and Jesus senses in Pilate questions. Pilate wants to know, what, are you, what is your life about? Who are you, and why do these people hate you so much, right? And so Jesus does engage with Pilate and has a conversation with him. And part of that's recorded by John in John 18 and verse 37. I want you to listen carefully with me this morning as, how to, as, as to how Jesus answers Pilate. He says, for this reason, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. You're about to get Jesus' mission statement. This is his reason for living. Right? He's condensed down everything that he's done, all the miracles he's performed, all the guys that he's worked with, all the sermons that he's preached. He's packaging this for one guy in a one 
sentence answer because that's all the time that he has to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is telling Pilate, Pilate, I'm here to show you what God's plan is for your life. That's my purpose. I'm here to visually illustrate it. I'm here to audibly tell you I am embodying what it means to live the life that God desires. And then he follows that with this little tagline, and those, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What, what he means by that is simply this, that no matter how far we are from God, no matter how confused we are, no matter what our backstory is, if you're a person that really wants to know what really is in the world, when you hear the gospel, it's going to connect. But if you're a person that's not interested in really paying attention to what God is doing in this world, you can sit in a church pew for 35 years and never hear what God is, is, is saying to you. That's a really scary thing to me. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Testifying to the truth, living out the truth, demonstrating the truth, that was Jesus' stated mission. In John 14 and verse 17, we read close to that earlier, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, right? Everything connected with the Godhead just has this same theme. And so when Paul starts off and he talks about our doctrine, it's because he wants for us to recognize that we need to make certain that what we're doing is consistent with what Jesus called us to do. Jesus would talk a lot about the dangers of, of false teachers, in Matthew and John, pardon me. In Matthew twenty-four, um, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, he said, "Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves." And uh, he talks about the, the danger of the false Christs and the false prophets who are going to deceive many. The Apostle Paul was very concerned about false prophets, right? Listen to this. He warned the Corinthians about those who are disguised as angels of light and servants of righteousness. He warned the people in Galatia that men would distort the gospel of Christ and they would be, they would be accursed because of it. He warned the Colossians that there were those among them who were trying to take them captive through empty philosophy and empty deception, right? And, and it's kind of talking about that to the church in Ephesus. He warns the church in Thessalonica that at the end times there will be a major apostasy and a lot of people are going to be deceived. He warns in, in the last letters to Timothy and Titus, last three letters to Timothy and Titus, he talks a number of times about being certain that you deal with false teachers and watch out for false teachers. There's people among you that are trying to distort what God has presented. In fact, in the final meeting with the Ephesian elders, the church that we're talking about today, in Acts the 20th chapter, as Paul is heading toward Jerusalem, this is his closing remark to those leaders in the church. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, Men will arise, they will speak perverse things, and they will draw away the disciples after them. Paul said, hey, you know what, guys? It's not out there sometimes. Sometimes it's people that are inside of the church community. You, you think about the people that gave Jesus the most grief. It was the people that knew who he was, Annas and Caiaphas and Herod, right? 
In fact, the one that almost gave Jesus grace was the one who didn't even know who he was or what he was about. That was Pilate. Pilate was nervous about it. In fact, Pilate tries to wash his hands of responsibility in putting Jesus on a cross, although you can't really do that. It was the religious people who put Jesus on the cross, the false teachers from among their own people. And you notice why Paul, what Paul says motivates the false teachers. He says that they will draw the disciples after them. He tells us that again in Ephesians 4, hasn't he? He says that for their own desires. They are getting something from the flock that they lead astray. There's a powerful, powerful precedent for us guys to be very, very sharp about our doctrine, about our philosophy, about people, the things that people tell us, this is true. This is what you need to do. It is always appropriate for us to take those words and put them up against the example of Christ and the teachings of Scripture. That's our responsibility. That's why Paul's so worried about this thing, doctrine. You know, sometimes we look at that, we're like, man, is Jason just getting passionate about this because that's his thing? I am passionate about this, but it's my thing because, guys, it makes a difference for all of us in the room today. Paul said, I don't want you guys to be children anymore. I want you to be grown-ups. I want you to get to a place of maturity. The waves that Paul talks about and the winds are the false teaching and the powerful currents of empty philosophy that pervades our culture even today. And guys, when you're out in those waves, they can sink your life. There's a lot of people that tell us a lot of things are true, but they just really aren't. Like, this is what you're supposed to do, but that's not really a way to handle that situation. That's not really the way to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with. And sometimes we just have to step back and say, how would Jesus have me handle this? What did Jesus do when he lived in this life? Some of us are like children in that we act impulsively. We base everything on our feelings and, and we live in the moment and rather than being thoughtful and careful. And there's a lot of beautiful things about living in the moment, but guys, we live in a very dangerous world to live in the moment. We just talked a little bit about before about how you might love to mix a few brightly colored chemicals in chemistry class, but you might blow something up living in the moment. And we do the same thing sometimes when we don't grow up and mature and begin to recognize that there are consequences for every decision that we make in life. Part of children growing up is that they begin to learn and think about the consequences for their decisions and their philosophies in life. And that's why Paul finishes in verse 15 in the way he does. He said, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That brings us really to the second thing that we want to look at this morning, and that is that that Paul said, I want you guys to not just have solid doctrine. I want you to know why you believe what you believe. I want you to make sure that your life philosophy is built on the Word of God. But I want you to share that truth with love. I don't think I need to tell you this morning that it is difficult to speak the truth in love. I think most of us struggle with that a little bit. In fact, it's kind of a difficult thing. It's one thing for us to be gracious on one hand, and, and it's another thing for us sometimes to be, to be honest on another. And I think that probably most of us tend to 
kind of kind of fall on one extreme or the other. Some of us are, are people that are, are naturally very truth-telling, right? So we'll tell people what, what they need to hear in life, but there's not a lot of grace. There's not a lot of love in that. Some of us are naturally very gracious and loving people, but we struggle to tell people what they need to hear and what is really going on to give them an honest outside perspective. You know that Jesus was able to balance both of those things. He was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. He managed to balance both of those characteristics simultaneously in one life. And that's really what we're called to do. We're called to imitate Jesus, to grow up, to look like the head, right? To act and function as Jesus would have. And so that involves kind of five easy or kind of five things that we're just going to kind of walk through really, really quickly this morning that I think all of us can do to become better at speaking the truth with love. And the first thing on that list is kind of a no-brainer, I get it, but it's that we ought to follow Christ's example. We talked about just a moment ago John's introduction in John 1 and verse 14, where John says that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. And, and Jesus does a brilliant job of balancing those two things. Maybe, maybe one of the quickest and clearest times that that happened is that moment when Jesus is left by the apostles at a well out in the middle of nowhere. They go in town to get lunch, and lo and behold, a woman comes out in the middle of the day to draw water. That might not catch any of our attentions, but women didn't come out late in the day, in the heat of the day, to draw water. She would have normally come early. Jesus knew all those things, and he begins to engage her in this conversation, right? And she's not really having any of it. She doesn't want to talk to him. She doesn't want to have anything to do with him. She's hardened by life until Jesus begins to demonstrate to her that he cares about her, but he's also willing to speak truthfully truthfully about where she is. Remember, he finally asks her, hey, why don't you go get your husband? Because that was the proper thing for her to have her husband with her to engage in a conversation with another man. That was a social norm in that time. And she responds back, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus just lays the truth on her, doesn't he? He says, you speak correctly. You're exactly right. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with is not currently your husband. And she's blown away by this, right? But she's blown away by this because Jesus mastered something that I'm not good at. Maybe you're not good at it, but something we all should work on. Jesus knew how to offer love and acceptance while at the same time telling the truth that they needed to hear. Jesus had talked with her long enough that she knew he cared about her. He'd already offered her living water. She already said, hey, I want to be a participant in that. That sounds like a great plan, right? I don't know what all else happened in that conversation, but from whatever it was, she knew that Jesus cared. Then Jesus could tell her what the truth was in her life. Whether she was a sinful woman or whether she was just a woman that had been disposed five different times in her life and wouldn't... Even the guy that she was with wouldn't even marry her. I don't know. It really doesn't matter. She was a broken person. Jesus showed her grace, but he also spoke truthfully with her. It's a powerful recipe for changing people's lives. Satan knows that. He would love to convince all of us today that we don't have to tell the truth or that you just have to tell the truth and just give it to them like it is. Kick them in the teeth. Because he knows neither one of those methods are effective of changing people's lives. What Satan is frightened by is people who are able to be full of grace and full of truth. The second thing that I think that we probably just naturally recognize here this morning is this is way bigger than us. You might be thinking what I'm thinking. That's great, Jason. That was Jesus. And you're right. 
All right? Jesus knew the answers. He, he knew what to say. He knew the words that would reach people. He was in tune with the world around him. He knew the word of God better than anyone because it was a part of him. He, he was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. I get it. And that's why Jesus didn't leave you and I here to figure this out on our own. In fact, when he was about to leave, he, he told the apostles, it's good that I'm going because when I go, the helper's going to come and he's going to lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit. And the second thing on my list is that we, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. If you know that you're about to have one of those conversations that will require you to balance grace and truth, the first thing that I would recommend that you do, whether it's obvious, you just take a moment and pray, or you're praying in your mind, is to go to God and ask Him for help. Ask the Lord to give you the words that you might say. Ask the Lord to lead the conversation in a constructive way. Ask the Lord to speak through you, to say the things that are going to be helpful and bring that person to a place where they can make the life change they need to, change, they need to make. Ask Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to follow His will and His lead and put His desires above our own. I think we're pretty honest, most of us here this morning with ourselves. It's really hard sometimes to figure out if we're doing what we're doing and we're feeling what we're doing or we're feeling because of our own desires or because it's really what that person needs to hear, right? And sometimes we just need to go to God and say, God, I want you to help me clear my mind. I want Help me to say what needs to be said, to not say what doesn't need to be said. That's my prayer a lot of times because I'm bad about sticking my foot in my mouth. And God, I want you to, I want you to accomplish your purpose in this interaction with this person. Sometimes we need to make sure that we choose the proper setting. Bringing up something in an argument often leads to defensiveness, and you never get anywhere, right? You just get two people that are kind of button heads, like a couple mountain goats up there just banging into each other. It's fun to watch, but nothing happens that's constructive. Sometimes you send out a text, and that can be just a recipe for misunderstanding, right? Sometimes um, sharing in a group can cause a lot of embarrassment, or it's just not appropriate. So oftentimes, the best way is the way the Bible actually tells us that if you have a problem with somebody, go to them one-on-one, have that conversation. Maybe, maybe you need to bring someone else with you if it's not safe or not appropriate for you to have that conversation one-on-one, but, but limit the amount of people that know about it and have a one-on-one conversation with that person in a space where both of you can listen and both of you can be heard. Number four, or D, is to understand before seeking to be understood. And I just threw this one in because this one's a really hard one for a lot of us. We, we want people to understand our position. But sometimes we have to understand somebody else's position before they're willing to listen to ours. And I know, I know, you're thinking, well, they should. Yes, of course, everyone should put, us, put the other person first, but this doesn't work like that, right? And sometimes God just says, you need to be the bigger person. You need to be the mature person. You need to be the person that steps out and says, hey, I want to hear where you're coming from first. There's very few big problems in the world that can't be worked through if both parties commit to understanding the other person's side of the story. Generally, that one thing alone will transform most contentious situations. But what I do, and maybe what you do, 
is I tell them what I think, and I don't listen to what they're saying. And that's why James says what he says to us in his practical book, James 1.19. He said, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's a recipe for having successful relationships and having impactful relationships in this world. And that leads us to E, which is simply this, to trust the results to God. Maybe God's calling you to have a difficult conversation with somebody and it's not going to be fun. Maybe that conversation initially doesn't do well. Maybe you walk away from that and you're like, man, I did not accomplish what I wanted to accomplish here. Leave the results to God. It's amazing how that God sometimes takes those things that we said and He applies them over time. They're kind of like a burr under the saddle, a seed that's planted in their heart, and it begins to grow and it begins to crack the hardest of hearts. Sometimes we just have to trust the results to God. So Paul said, hey, I want, you guys to, I want you guys to know why you believe what you believe. I want you to have a stable doctrine. I don't want you to be out there just being blown and tossed by everyone who says this is truth. I want you to grow up and be adults, not children. I want you to speak the truth in love. And then in the second half of that verse, he says that we might grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And that reminds us really, of the third thing that Paul says is kind of a, a, a test for spiritual maturity because a healthy Christian every day is growing to look more like Jesus, to look more like Christ. And we're all in different places on that journey. And, and really, that's not the most important thing, where you are. It's, it's are you every day making progress? I don't know how many of you guys have ever, ever, um, ever gone back and looked at something that your, your first start. I was cleaning out some files this last week a file cabinet that I had in college, and I just kind of like shoved this thing back because I'm not big on cleaning and organizing like that. It's boring. Um, but it has to be done once in a while, right? So I pull out this file cabinet, and I'm like, today is a day. And I'm digging through these files, and I happen to come up with a file that said old sermons. Now, some of you are going to be fond of these old sermons because they were like on one of those yellow pieces of paper, front and back. That was it, right? Um, a five-minute sermon right there. You guys are like, Jason, where is a five-minute sermon now, right? Um, but you can look back at those things and you think, man, I've come a little ways, right? Some of you guys maybe listened to yourself when you first started playing an instrument, and now you play that instrument at a different level. You, you heard the first time that you sang or, or the first time you went out to play baseball and you tried to hit a ball and someone took a video of you playing t-ball, and now you're in high school and your skill level is, is a lot more. Don't forget that you didn't just wake up one morning and bam, you're a great ball player, or bam, you're a beautiful singer, or bam, you could play an instrument with perfection. It was a slow but measurable progress. And that's what God wants to see sometimes in us too. It's going to be slow because we're humans, but he wants us every day to look more like Christ than we did yesterday, that we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, right? A lot of us, when we were little guys and gals, we said, I want to grow up to be like my dad or my mom. We respected them. We honored them. That's exactly the ideology that Paul's using here. He said, I want you to kind of grow up to be like our hero, Jesus, Want you to look like him, think like him, respond like him. Obviously, we can't do it alone. We need the Spirit. But that is a goal. And then he finishes, as we'll finish today, this way, in verse 16. He reminds us that a healthy Christian has a team mindset. 
It's not about me, but it becomes we. He says, for from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We mentioned this a few weeks ago in passing, but there's a big difference in how we make things and how God makes things. When God makes things, he makes things to reproduce. We produce things, and we produce some pretty fantastic things, but they constantly have to be redesigned and re-engineered and reproduced. But God, God invents things that reproduce themselves, right? You don't have to have a machine to make a human. The human makes another human, and that human builds itself up, right? A tree, a seed is planted in the ground that falls from another tree. It sprouts in the ground, and from that seed, a tree grows up. No one builds the tree. The tree grows on its own. And Paul said that is exactly the shape that our Creator has for His church. He wants that church to build itself up with love. That's the currency of God's economy, if you will. That is the, that is the, the, the fruit of God's building is, is love. God's, he said, I want this whole building, this whole body that's joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. That's all of us, right? He just talked about the leadership at the beginning of this passage. Remember, this is a big sentence, right? He starts talking about how God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and preachers and teachers, the elders of the church. He said, I give you all those people so that that the church might be built up to look like Jesus. But now he's bringing us back full circle and he's reminding us that it's not just them that's doing the work. It's not just those guys that serve, but that it's all of us. This is a team together. And he said, when each part is working properly. You know you have a healthy Christian walk. You know you have a healthy church when the body is growing and it builds itself up in love. When a person that's experienced the grace and mercy and salvation of God goes out in the world and they find somebody else who's lost like they were, and they introduce them to the message of the gospel, and that person's sins are washed away, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to grow and mature, and they go out into the broken world, and they find someone that was lost like they were, and they are, they are introduced to the gospel, and they are baptized, and they are filled with the Spirit, and they begin to grow and learn, and then that person goes out. You guys get the point, right? It could go on for days. That's exactly the cycle that God wants to see, that the church is constantly growing, that people are bringing new people to the Lord whose lives are being transformed, and those transformed people are going out and transformed transforming other people's lives. That's our job, church. That's the plan. This verse has really two practical applications. Number one, it reminds us that we're joined together. You might look around this morning and say, I don't know about this team, Jason. Hey, we've all been on one of those before, but this is the team, right? This is the place that God has put us. This is the people that God has said, these are your church family Sometimes maybe we know a little bit about somebody and we know, maybe I don't know if I want to be on the team with them. It's not our business, it's his. The Lord adds to the church daily, those who are being saved. It's our responsibility to grow closer with one another. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? If I get over here, then I'll I'll grow on my own. It just doesn't work like that. That's not the way the church is designed. That's not the way the master builder has built it. We grow together. And secondly, it reminds us that every one of us can serve. Not just some of us, but all of us. 
not only have the opportunity, but we really have the responsibility to serve. So this morning as we close, I just want to challenge all of us that we might step back and we might honestly evaluate our own spiritual health. I mean, no one's going to come up and stick a stethoscope on your back and say, hmm, I don't know, Jason. You don't know when you look at somebody if their blood sugar's high, if their blood pressure is out of range. You don't know if they have an arrhythmia. You can't tell by looking at somebody if they're healthy or unhealthy oftentimes. But when you start to look at the vital statistics, it's then that the story is told. So are you, am I, are we growing in doctrinal understanding? Do we know why we believe what we believe? And are our beliefs, beliefs biblically based? Can we defend them from Scripture? Can we, can we say, I believe this because of this, and I don't have an opinion on this because God didn't seem to think that it was that important? Are we practicing and confessing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel with all the love that Christ presented it, for, uh, presented it to us with in the first place? Are we growing toward Christ-likeness in all areas of our life? Or are there some areas in our life where it's just a lot more like Jason-likeness? You know, I think we all probably have those, right? You look at that area and you're like, that's Jason. The rest of these areas are Christ, but that one's Jason. Jesus wants all of us, not just part of us. He wants all of us. And when there's one part that's still us, there's a weak link in the chain. Satan knows that, by the way. Are we serving to contribute to the growth of the whole body? in love. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together in the upper room with 12 guys that he knew as good as anybody. He had spent the last year and a half to three years walking dusty roads, performing miracles, arguing with, teaching, and loving these 12 guys. But they crashed into that meal that night, just like probably you or I might crash into the meal. They were eager to eat. They were eager to fellowship. Peter and John are over there arguing who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, or James and John, rather. Peter's over there thinking his own thing, and Jesus is looking around the table with a nagging question. Who is going to serve? Well, John, John saw that feet hadn't been washed, but that's a little beneath the one that Jesus loved. Thomas doubted whether or not he could do it appropriately. He might mess something up, so he should probably sit here. And Judas is only thinking about the pieces of silver and how he's going to invest that money that he's about to get when he tells the location of Jesus in a few hours. And so Jesus gets up from the table. He lays his coat on the back of the seat. He wraps a towel around his waist. He picks up a bowl of water, and he goes to one of the apostles' feet, and he says, here, let me see. And he begins to wash their feet. We don't know which one he went to first, but we do know when he got to Peter, Peter's like, oh no, Lord, I get it, man. I should have been the one washing feet. You can't wash my feet. This is just not right. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And I love Peter. Peter's like, well, then wash me all, right? But when Jesus finished, he said to us, he said to them, something really important for us to remember as we leave here today. He said, as I have done for you, you do for one another. So easy for me to serve, but to serve in ways that benefit me. Jesus wasn't worried about any benefit for himself. He just wanted those guys to understand how much he loved them. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. 
and he knew how much he loved those guys. So he served. Maybe you're here today and you just realize, you know what, I've never started this spiritual journey. I know all about it. I've heard a thousand sermons or maybe five. <laughs> I know that my sins need to be washed away in baptism. I know I'll get the spirit to help me deal with the challenges of life. If you've never made that decision, please don't leave here today without making that. Maybe some of us are just here and we're like, you know what, I need to be serving and I'm not. I'm sitting at the table. I have my excuses. Maybe today is the day for you to say, church family, I'm ready to step out of those excuses. If you have a need, please come. We're going to stand together. Let's sing.